0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this program, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with Eric Lomazov, an assistant professor of political science at Villanova University, to discuss his new book, Reconstructing the National Bank Controversy, Politics and Law in the Early American Republic. As a friendly reminder, there is still time to register for our Michelle Smith Lecture Series. The first event will take place on March 27, featuring Nick Bunker, who will discuss his new book, Young Benjamin Franklin The Birth of Ingenuity. More information about this program can be found on the episode page for this podcast at slash podcast. Now we join Dr. Butterfield and Dr. Lomazoff in the studio. So, very near the beginning of George Washington's first term as president, He's faced with one of the first constitutional controversies in, in, our, in our nation's history, and it's a difficult one. Set the stage for us in 1790, 1791 for this controversy over the Bank of the United States.
1: So in late, or actually in middle of December 1790, uh, Alexander Hamilton delivers a uh, a report to Congress proposing the creation of a national bank. He sees that institution uh, he describes it as a uh, as a quote fiscal auxiliary that would be of great uh, help to the United States government. He has in mind um, being a, a, a an institution that would be a potential lender in times of need. He has in time or, or he has in mind uh, the bank as a as a fiscal agent for the government. Um, these are all really important things, and they're things that um, people throughout Congress thought would be useful. the the problem was um, that there is no specific power in the Constitution uh, that permits Congress to create a national bank, and so you get uh, the emergence of a debate in the tail end of the um, of that first Congress about whether they're actually whether they can
0: actually do this. this um, the first, the first Congress, the same Congress that writes the Bill of Rights, that is certainly putting the Constitution into action. They're faced with this first controversy.
1: They are faced with this first controversy, and it is. So yes, within the first two years of the government being up and running, you have a major fight break out over <laughs> the scope of Congress's power. So it's it's not as if um, this particular question
0: got settled in any definitive way in Philadelphia in
1: 1787. What did they
0: know in, in Philadelphia in 1787 about the idea of of chartering a national bank? Had they ever brought it up?
1: There had been a proposal made at the convention to grant Congress the power to, uh, or to give Congress the power to grant charters of incorporation. Uh, That had been uh, defeated. There were sundry other Powers listed in Article One, Section Eight: power to lay and collect taxes, power to uh, to borrow money, to regulate interstate commerce, um, things of that sort. The the question, therefore, heading into 1791, um, or late 1790, early 1791, was whether, in fact, Congress could create a bank pursuant to any of those specific powers.
0: Hmm. So. I, I guess we should try to set the stage as to what this bank is that Hamilton is envisioning. Uh, we, I think, we know about the Federal Reserve System now. This is something very different from that. But how would you characterize it? What, was it were there parallels in other countries in in the late 18th century? What is Hamilton envisioning?
1: So. I would go back to something I, I mentioned earlier. Hamilton meant something specific when he referred to it as a fiscal, uh, a, a fiscal auxiliary. Um, he has in mind fiscal functions, monetary functions. Come into the bank story later, and I'm sure we'll we'll have a chance to to talk about it. Uh, he is thinking about uh, an institution that is going to help manage the federal government's finances. This is going to be an institution that. Takes in money, let's say that the government collects in tax revenues. It's going to pay out money that the government owes, let's say to its employees. Um, it's going to help move money
0: around. Why isn't the Department of the Treasury doing that? What? What? Why do they? What? What's this bank doing that the Treasury doesn't do?
1: Well, the Bank of the United States or a, a national bank would also be in a position to lend to private parties. Hmm. Um, so it would not simply be a fiscal auxiliary to the federal government. It would also be uh, a commercial bank in its own right. And then there are more specific reasons why Hamilton's Treasury thought that a, a, a commercial bank would be an appropriate vehicle for both engaging in sort of private lending and also performing public
0: functions. So Congress gets this, this proposal. Uh, they grapple with it. As best I know, they, they, both houses pass it. Relatively quickly, uh, the the
1: Senate passes it very quickly. We know very little about that because there were simply no it's records. Closed doors, right? It's yeah, they are in secret session, as it were, um, and it heads to the House, and the House is where it it runs uh, it runs into trouble. Um, we typically think of James Madison, who is at that point as a member of the House from from Virginia, um, as making the the first. Big speech there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not the first person to speak on the, on the constitutional question. Uh, I think he's the second or, or, um, or the third, but he's definitely the member of the House who raises the first big constitutional alarm.
0: And what is that anxiety? What does James Madison see that, that, that Alexander Hamilton didn't?
1: A couple minutes ago, we were talking and I was mentioning those specific powers of Congress, mm-hmm. and laying and collecting taxes, borrowing money. There is one other provision in Article One, Section 8, and it is the very last provision, and we call it the Necessary and Proper Clause. Gives Congress the power to pass laws that are necessary and proper for executing the foregoing powers, and there are 17. Uh, there are 17 foregoing powers. Mm-hmm. Madison's objection was that a national bank was not necessary for executing or exercising uh, any of the foregoing 17, Uh, and so that was the basis for his constitutional objection. He said, you you can't do this as a direct means of exercising, for example, the power to to borrow money, but you also can't claim that this is, quote unquote, necessary uh, for exercising the power to borrow money.
0: James Madison uh, doesn't prevail in the House debates. Ultimately, they do pass a bill, and it comes to our man, President George Washington, um, this this uh, um, proposal to, to establish a national bank, the Bank of the United States. Um, George Washington, I, I, I don't know uh, if, if you know how he felt about it initially. I, 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 I know in the end that he asked for, for expert opinions. Any sense as to what George Washington's gut instinct was?
1: I have absolutely no clue, and I and I think I have a lot of company in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, Washington played his cards quite close to his vest. There are obviously many historians out there who think by and large, even though Washington was not formally associated with any of the or I'm sorry with either of the uh, of the nascent parties, that his inclination was more towards the Federalists. Mm-hmm. Um, but Washington certainly said nothing. Uh, that would
0: indicate his disposition towards the bill that was sitting, you know, on his desk. But he's got this this <laughs> this, this, this team of rivals, as we might call them, uh, uh, sitting around him, and he asks for their expert opinions. Uh, talk us through that. What happens when Washington uh, reaches out to those around him to uh, to give their thoughts on the constitutionality of the bank?
1: Sure, and I. I uh, I'm not sure that I had ever come across the idea of Washington's cabinet as a as a team of rivals, but it they're, they're certainly rivals of one another. Yeah, um, yeah. So Washington solicits the the opinion of basically everybody in the cabinet, and cabinets were small at that point. Um, and he gets uh, an opinion from Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, expressing. Considerable doubt as to the constitutionality of the bank, and large, along, the same lines uh, as Madison. along the same lines as Madison, he also receives not one but two memoranda from Edmund Randolph, who is the uh, the nation's first attorney general. Randolph also expresses skepticism. He is, however, more inclined to the view that if if Washington believes that. Everything is sort of balanced um, arguments for and against that Washington could then consider signing the bank bill, but it's pretty clear that Randolph also believes that it suffers from the same constitutional problems that, um, that Jefferson and Madison are, uh, are talking about. Mm-hmm. At that point, Washington goes to Treasury Secretary Hamilton and says, listen, I, I've got these opinions. They are unfriendly to the bill. I'm going to give you a chance to weigh in here, but my dear treasury secretary, keep in mind the clock is ticking here. I only have so many days under the constitution to sign a bill that's been presented to me. Um, So, As I like to tell my own students, and as I talk about in the book, Hamilton goes and in very short order um, produces a lengthy essay. Uh, for Washington in response to the claims of Randolph and Jefferson. Uh, I like to describe it as the sort of first great all-nighter uh, mm-hmm. in American history, because he's, he has an essay prompt, as it were, from the President of the United States. He sits up, uh, his wife Eliza sits up with him, copies out um, his his material by hand. And so the next morning, um, really with just a day or two left in the in the 10-day window, um Hamilton leaves for Washington's office with the modern-day equivalent of a 40-page double-spaced paper uh, and delivers it. And The only real grade that Hamilton needs, and in fact the grade that he gets, is a passing one because Washington ultimately decides uh, to sign the bank bill. He does not issue any message whatsoever. Um, Nothing akin to a modern-day executive signing statement Mm. indicating his thoughts on the constitutional question. We simply know that Washington signs the bill.
0: Wow. So the bank is established, um, and this is uh, Does that have a a sunset? How long is this bank going to exist?
1: The bank gets a 20-year charter from the first Congress, so it is set to Its charter is going to be up
0: in March of 1811. So tell tell me about that twenty years. What, what what does the bank start to look like as it takes shape? Uh, does it fulfill Hamilton's hopes and dreams?
1: It certainly fulfills Hamilton's hopes and dreams. Uh, there are things that go on during that twenty-year period that Hamilton really had not um, had not anticipated, and as I talk about in the uh, in the book, really do have consequences for future debates over the bank's constitutionality. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that happens is you see the proliferation of banks chartered by the various states in the union. So You can imagine in 1791, you have this big national bank established. You only have a handful of other banks chartered uh, in the United States. Yeah. Over the next 20 years, imagine a um, hundred plus state I'm sorry, a uh, uh, hundred plus banks popping up all over the country. By the time you get to 1811, they pop up in every state of the union. There's also a bank uh, in New Orleans, which is still a territory at that point. The, the other thing that goes on, which matters mm-hmm. here, is it's not simply the case that these smaller banks are created. It is also the case that the national bank develops relationships with them, and in particular, it develops a a regu- uh, a regulatory uh, relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Modern economists would say it begins to perform a monetary function. That's the sort of thing that Hamilton had not anticipated. There is nothing in his 1790 report or any of his subsequent, well, there is some material about it in his subsequent correspondence, which hints that he knows it's coming. Um, but certainly in 1790, it is not apparent that the national bank is going to be is going to perform a function that today in 2019 we associate with a central bank and mm-hmm. i actually think that we mischaracterize
0: the first bank as a central bank at the moment of its creation but over time, it's it's helping to sort of establish what interest rates are and ought to be, that kind of thing.
1: Well, it's uh, obviously banks are going to have some influence over um, over interest rates. The the thing that the the bank created in 1791 begins to do over time is effectively regulate how much money is being circulated by those state banks. So at this time in American history, every single Chartered bank in the country is issuing its own paper currency, and the reason why we talk about the national bank as a regulator or as a um, as a monetary force is because, for various reasons, it is in a position to go to these smaller state chartered banks and basically say, "We think you're circulating too much money. We think that this is producing inflation in the economy. We want you to curtail your operations." If you won't do it, we're going to force you to do it. Hmm.
0: So, in that twenty-year run, we get up to, I guess, eighteen eleven. Um, are there ongoing um, critics and and um, people advocating for the destruction of the bank, or is it does it live a pretty um, uh, accepted life in its twenty-year run?
1: It it lives a a, a pretty accepted life. It, in some respects, it, it never. It's not even by the time you get to the 1830s does the bank ever escape claims that it's it's just illegitimate. Mm. Um, it, those those claims are always dogging it. For the most part, however, during that during the period at least up through 1810 or so, um, the bank is operating. It is performing all of the functions that that Hamilton uh, had had talked about uh, in his report uh, on a national bank. The the one sort of clear indication that we have that even those who were previously antagonistic towards the bank are at least willing to work with it is the fact that that Thomas Jefferson, as president, um, signed a bill to create a branch of the bank in New Orleans after we acquired the Louisiana Territory from France. And mm-hmm. if you think about what Jefferson's position was in in 1791, that's actually pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And yet. Jefferson, as president, is willing uh, willing to sign this bill. Huh. So, uh, what happens at the end of twenty years? What happens at the end of twenty years is you get a push in Congress. We're talking about the 11th Congress now. The 11th Congress, which is set to wrap up in early March of 1811. So, late 1810, you get the introduction of a bill to extend the bank's charter. At that point, you get a revival of the constitutional question. Okay. A couple things have changed, though, since 1791. One is some of the stuff that I was talking about earlier. You have a lot of state banks around. Um, You also have the, the bank as this regulatory institution. The other thing that you have that's different from 1791 is now Republicans, or Democratic Republicans are clearly in charge of Congress, and
0: the Federalist Party is on the wane.
1: The yep, Federalist Party is definitely um, on the wane. Um, they're definitely the the minority. Federalists support the the recharter of the bank. They they support a, an extension of the bank's charter. Republicans are more divided. You do have moderate Republicans who want who basically have made their peace with the bank. Uh, they want to see it continue. But you have this um, the the major portion of the of the Republican coalition has problems with this institution. Some of it is principled. Some of them have never reconciled themselves to a national bank. Others, however, have an actual interest here. Some of them, some members of Congress own stock in these smaller institutions, or just as importantly, they have constituents who own stock in those institutions. And those institutions are going to get the federal government's business if the Bank of the United States has to shut its doors. Okay. And so what you see in 1811 is you see a collection of individuals who, for various reasons, are opposed to the bank's recharter narrowly but successfully prevent the bank from uh, from getting one. And so in, in 1811, the bank that Alexander Hamilton had championed and George Washington
0: had signed into law has to shut its doors. Wow. And president at the time is James Madison. Is he weighing in on this?
1: This is a really interesting question because, uh, again, Madison had had the first major speech in, in 1791 about this. There are hints. That if a bill to extend the bank's charter had reached his desk, he would have signed it. The Treasury Secretary at the time, uh, Albert Gallatin, he was definitely in favor of extending the bank's charter. And Gallatin, it appears, had successfully convinced Madison or had had at least uh, allayed his his constitutional concerns. Mm. We don't, however, have anything in print which suggests that Madison was fully reconciled uh, to a bank's constitutionality, at least not in 1811.
0: Wow. Uh, so I can do the math uh, that the War of 1812 is probably coming pretty soon. Um, what happens after 1811? We don't have a bank, um, and we are, again, at war with, with Great Britain. Uh, I'm, I can only imagine that that's, that adds a, a new wrinkle to to the already uh, existing challenge of the the American... Uh, banking world uh, a bit being shaken up by the removal or the disappearance of the Bank of the United States. So tell us about the next few years.
1: Yeah. One way that people like to characterize this is to say, if, if you're thinking about financing a war against a foreign power, a national bank goes away at the very time when you need it the most. Mm. So we're talking about war breaking out with Great Britain 14, 15 months after the bank closes its doors. This, this is the absolute worst time for this to happen. So what happens? Well, the federal government does a whole bunch of things during the War of 1812 to basically make the finances work. They borrow money from those state banks that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, they even begin to toy with the issuing of, of what were called treasury notes, which you could think of as the forerunner to uh, to fiat currency, yeah. these, these are basically notes that don't have any intrinsic value, um, which is to say they, they don't represent uh, gold and silver. They're simply issued on the faith and cre- on the full faith and credit of the United States government. Um, so that's one part of the story. Is you know, imagine the federal government trying to prosecute a war and not having a national bank that it can routinely go to um, to borrow money. There's another part of the story, however, and one of the things I want to do, or I try to do in the book, is to place greater emphasis on this part of the of the War of 1812, is to say, during that same period, there are economic pressures all around. And they also hit these state banks. And mm-hmm. state banks, for various reasons, um, begin to expand their operations, um, and at one point during the war, and there's debate about whether this is actually caused by the British attack um, on on Maryland and D.C. or not, at one point during the war uh, in the fall, or actually late summer, early fall of, of 1814, Basically, all of the nation's banks outside of New England stop paying gold and silver for their notes. Mm. Um, They basically say, "We we just can't do it for various reasons." You're gonna, you know, you can continue to to use this money, but we're not going to redeem it for gold and silver. And so you have virtually overnight uh, price inflation in the United States in ways that you had not seen since the Revolutionary War. Now, bear in mind. Uh, the National Bank had been exactly the sort of institution that might, had it still been in existence, might have prevented this sort of thing mm. from happening. Nevertheless, that problem exists no later than you know, mid-fall of 1814. And what's worse, at least from the standpoint of, of members of Congress, s- those state banks that have suspended the payment of gold and silver even after the war ends, they don't want to resume payment. Mm. And it's not out of principle. It's out of interest because it's highly profitable for them to simply print money, print more money without any limit whatsoever and lend it out. And they don't want to give up this these very profitable arrangements.
0: But also potentially disastrous, I would think. Certainly, if they overextend themselves.
1: Well, it, it's not disastrous insofar as they're no longer making promises um, to pay gold and silver for their notes. Well, it, is, that, yeah. it is, it yeah. is, however, disastrous for any American who is living on a regular wage, which virtually all of them are, and need to make ends meet. Because again, they, they, at this point, they are experiencing price inflation on the scale of various estimates go between five and twenty percent per year and I'm sure that if any of us had to deal with inflation on that scale we would complain
0: about it well. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So the war is wrapping up, though. You mentioned fall of 1814. I know that the Battle of New Orleans uh, comes uh, in early 1815, and by then, of course, we're at peace. So uh, we know the war's coming to a close, at least uh, in hindsight. Uh, We historians know that. What happens then? Uh, I I, I know there's another bank coming.
1: Yes. So so the war ends, and and as I mentioned, the, the war ends, but state banks are not inclined to go and change how they're doing business. Um,
0: is that when Congress is, is beginning
1: to think they need to do something? That is when Congress is beginning to think, well, wait a second, what are, what are we going to do about these state banks? How are we going to solve this problem? And There was a question about whether Congress could act directly on the state banks, but um, everybody in Congress, and this is a good example of of, uh, of institutional memory operating, everybody in Congress knows, in a sense, of one potential solution to the problem of state banks running amok, hmm. and that's a national bank. Right. And so, late 1815, we get a functional rerun of what we had in late 1790. You get the new treasury secretary at that time, Alexander J. Dallas, who, issued, who sends a report to Congress proposing the creation of a new national bank. This time, however, he makes clear that the bank's principal purposes are not going to be fiscal; they're going to be monetary. They're going to be monetary, which is to say, they are going to be an attempt. It, it's it's going to be an attempt to bring these state banks to heel, um, to bring, to put those state banks in a position where they can resume the payment of gold and silver uh, for their notes. So the idea now is not fiscal support for the government. The idea now is the stability of the
0: um, the stability of of the monetary system. So uh, the constitutional question is long settled. Everyone's fine. Everyone's on board. Not exactly how it works out.
1: Okay. What happens in
0: late eighteen fifteen and especially
1: early eighteen sixteen is you have plenty of people who want the bank, but you still have some lingering. Concern about it. Uh, or, I'm sorry, you still have some lingering concern about its constitutional status. Right, right. And in particular, you have concern from members of the Republican coalition who are thinking, well, wait a second, if we if we go for a bank, aren't we implicitly embracing Hamilton's understanding of the necessary and proper clause? We don't want to do that. If, if we do that, who knows what else we're basically um, sanctioning Congress to, to pass laws on. And as a result, you see the emergence of something that I describe in the book uh, as the compromise of 1816. The idea behind the compromise is, in order to avoid another fight over the necessary and proper clause, Mm -hmm. which undoubtedly would have happened, in order to avoid that fight, but to nevertheless get the institutional benefits of a new national bank, Republicans, leading Republicans, Basically, invent a new constitutional argument, and, the, and it is entirely separate from the Necessary and Proper Clause. So, there is a one of the enumerated powers of Congress in Article One, Section Eight, is the is the fifth power, and that is the power to coin money, regulate the value thereof. Okay. Their argument is that a bank, by virtue of restoring gold and silver coin which is viewed as the true money of the country, uh, restoring it to circulation, Um, if a national bank can help produce that outcome, then a national bank represents an exercise of the power to coin money, uh, regulate the value thereof. It's not the cleanest fit, let's say, from the standpoint of the constitutional text or, um, or the history of that clause. Yeah. Nevertheless, it works politically because it gives more conservative Republicans in Congress uh, an out. It lets them have the bank without embracing a Hamiltonian understanding uh, of the necessary and proper clause. And the argument that I make in the book is that the power to coin money, regulate the value thereof, which we refer to as the coinage clause today, that is the constitutional foundation for the bank that's created uh, in in 1816.
0: And President James Madison has the bill arrive on his desk, does, does he buy it wholeheartedly? <laughs>
1: So James Madison, uh, as president, signs that bill in April of 1816. There is evidence to suggest that that Madison is at least modestly persuaded by this argument because when Madison goes and gives his very last uh, annual message to, uh, to Congress in December of 1816, he refers to the passage of this bill, and he refers specifically to the coinage clause as the provision of the Constitution uh, that members of, of that Congress uh, had relied upon, that is not a full-throated endorsement mm-hmm. of it. On the other hand, there's nothing about the language that is anything but approving of the work that Congress did.
0: I know that everyone um, has some sense uh, from their uh, college history class or, or uh, their... their general knowledge of 19th century American history that the bank doesn't die a peaceful death. Uh, But I wonder if you could just wrap up the story of the second bank in the United States. What happens in its 20-year run?
1: So, I would say there are two sort of signature moments in the history of the second bank. Uh, The first comes with McCulloch v. Maryland in 1819 which is a, a Supreme Court case that, on the face of it, is simply concerned with the question of whether a state, in this case the state of Maryland, can tax one of the branches of the Bank of the United States, which is, in this case, it's the one located in uh, in Baltimore. The reason why McCulloch is so big is because by the time the, the case gets to the Supreme Court, the court has added a second question to the agenda, and it's logically prior to the question of whether a state can tax the bank, it's, is the bank constitutional at all? And John Marshall uses the court's opinion in McCulloch to to basically make the case on Hamiltonian terms, not the terms that had been used in 1816 with the coinage clause, on Hamiltonian terms, that in fact, Congress was well within its rights to create a national bank. The other signature moment is what you get in the early 1830s uh, with with Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson, basically, from the moment he takes office in early 1829, makes it clear that he has constitutional problems uh, with the Bank of the United States. It's worth noting here that that at this time, not only is Jefferson, I'm sorry, uh, not only is Jackson the first president of the Democratic Party, but Democrats also control Congress. Mm-hmm. And that's important because Democrats, despite the fact that Jackson has constitutional anxiety about a national bank, uh, Democrats pass a bill to extend the bank's charter in uh, in the middle of 1832. That bill goes to the president. The president not only vetoes the bill, but he issues a lengthy veto message explaining why it is. That, despite the Supreme Court's decision in McCulloch v. Maryland, he personally believes that the bank is not necessary, and because he must be uh, guided by his own understanding of the Constitution, he is going to veto the bill as being unconstitutional.
0: Wow! So all of these debates uh, about the the constitutionality of the bank, uh, I'm 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 guessing that there's a. a, a an obvious relevance of why this should matter to Americans today, as they're looking at constitutional debates uh, that that's around us all the time. What's your sense of what's why? Why? What does the story tell us about our our sense of the Constitution in the 21st century? Is there anything we can learn?
1: I think there are two things that we can learn. Um, one is general, and one is more specific to the to the history of of the bank itself. The the more general lesson that I try to offer in the book is that notwithstanding how we have traditionally talked about the bank debate, what, what you actually see, especially between 1791 and 1816, is you see an institution changing. The bank as an institution is changing. And then you see the debate over its constitutionality change in response. Mm-hmm. and. It, it's just an example of looking at how the world changes and then understanding how decision makers, public officials who are charged with thinking seriously about the, about the Constitution how they respond to it um, yeah. so in in that sense I, I uh, what I'm trying to do is basically say hey listen the bank debate as we know it as this recurring debate over the necessary and proper clause. Actually the bank story is much richer and has a lot to tell us about what happens in a society operating under a constitution uh, where the society is is constantly changing. The other lesson, the more bank specific lesson, is and we don't see this frequently, but every now and again you will see arguments that our modern monetary institution, the Federal Reserve, Has some, well, has unsteady constitutional foundations. Whenever that argument is trotted out, and the most famous recent example would be Ron Paul questioning then Fed Chair Ben Bernanke in the heart of the financial crisis of uh, 2008. Whenever that question is trotted out, either an official at the Federal Reserve or an academic will respond by defending the authority of the Federal Reserve in terms of Congress's power to coin money, regulate the value thereof. Mm-hmm. I make an argument at, at the end of the book that not only is the coinage clause an important part of the bank's history, but there are, there is evidence to suggest that if you trace the story out long enough through the rest of the 19th century into the early 20th century, that it's actually the bank's history which gives us the argument that the coinage clause can support not just a national bank in the, in the 19th century, but in fact can support something like the Federal Reserve in the 20th uh, and now uh, into the
0: 21st. It's a great, uh, it's a great insight. I had, I had not made that connection, and I think it's uh, interesting to me how McCulloch v. Merrill and John Marshall's opinion, uh, for me as a historian, seems to have er- erased this this coinage uh, cause uh, element of, of its creation. Uh, thank you so much for coming out to Melbourne and talking with us about this book. Oh, thank uh, you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.